You know, many believers don't consider how their prayer life is actually affected by the way that they live. You know, according to scripture, there are at least 10 specific things that we as believers can do if we want to see more fruit in our prayer life. And these things aren't difficult, but this is not some kind of formula where God becomes nothing more than a cosmic vending machine. God is not some genie. God is not some divine butler at our service, but he has given us clear direction in scripture for how to pray. And he's given us clear direction for what we need to do if we want to see more of our prayers answered. That is what we'll be looking at in this morning's message. Let's get started, ladies and gentlemen. This is week 15 of our series all about prayer. And if I were to summarize today's message in one succinct statement, I would say it like this, and I wrote it down like this for a reason. It is far easier to pray God's will when you are already living out his will. Obedience affects our prayer life, boys and girls, it really does. Um, And it doesn't matter how long you've been walking with God or how much you disagree with that statement or how much that can be nuanced. Obedience affects our prayer life. And it's so much easier to pray the will of God, even in areas where we're uncertain and unclear on, when we're already living out what he's revealed of his will to us, whatever is his known revealed will. So um, if I were to define prayer, as I've stolen it from John Piper and just reworked it a little bit, uh, prayer is talking to God with intention and with purpose as his beloved child and according to his word. Prayer is talking to God with intention and with purpose um, as his beloved child and according to his word. Those are the three biggest components of prayer. And then the reason that we pray is that prayer has, well, God has ordained prayer to be the method of causing certain things in our life, in our world, in our society, in our government, in our culture, in our neighborhoods. God has ordained that prayer is the way he is going to initiate certain things and and do certain things in our world. Not all things, but certain things God has ordained to only do if his people should pray. And so prayer becomes a way in which we partner with God and ask for the things that he wants to do through his people if we would simply know what to ask for. Um, This is not, when I say look, Um, many believers don't consider how much their prayer life is affected by the way that they live. And I say, hey, we're going to look at 10 specific things because I want to really get just on the ground as practical as we can without making this, uh, I don't know, just like a a feel-good motivational speech because you just get that across churches nowadays where it's like 10 steps to a better life. But this is like legitimately 10, at least 10 things I found in scripture that believers should be doing and you can be doing today right now if you want to see more of your prayers answered and I know that when people hear that there can almost be this this flavor of well now God is just a divine butler he's just a cosmic vending machine where if I just input the right combination I'll get the right results back or if I just put in the right amount of quarters I can choose whatever it is that I want and he'll do it And that's not at all what I'm trying to reduce God down to. I'm not trying to reduce him down to anything. In fact, what I'm trying to say is that God, anytime that God is going to answer our prayers, it is not because of our own inherent goodness. It is not because of our own inherent, we've earned this, we deserve this. We're not entitled to anything that God does for us. This is not about our our goodness or or our personal entitlement. This is about God graciously uh, doing things in our life because we ask and because he's ordained for that to happen. This is more about when I say do these 10 things and you'll see more prayers answered in your life. I want you to reframe it. Okay. This is more about there are 10 conditions at least God has given us. He's set in place. And if we meet those 10 conditions, we are more likely aligned with God's will and his heart for our lives so that when we pray, 
it's more consistent, more likely to be consistent with his will for our personal lives. The problem is we don't really consider how, you know, when we're praying, is this even a part of what God wants to do? Is, is this even what his will is? Is this even what is good for humanity? Is this even what God desires for me personally? That's not for a lot of us at times when we pray, that's not on our radar. And so there are 10 things you can specifically do, but let me take you to, let me, let me just start here. There is a, and this is going to be hard for some of you to accept. There is a biblical category, even when it comes to believers, saints, children of God, there is a biblical category for acceptable prayers. And I put that in air quotes because that's just the phrase I'm working with, acceptable prayers versus unacceptable prayers. Let me take you to a few passages to kind of give you that um, that foundation as we move forward. Because this, when I say there are 10 things we can be doing today to increase the fruit of our prayer life, to improve our prayer life, to see more results in our, in our answered prayers, I'm, I'm going to be building from this premise that there is a biblical category for acceptable prayers versus unacceptable prayers. And we need to define this terminology. We know, just as John 9, 31, Jesus heals a blind man and the, the blind man talking to the Pharisees, uh, and this is something that they agree upon as, as a, the Jewish people. This is understood theology. We know, we know that God does not listen to sinners. And then I know the pushback right now for you is going to be, well, we are not sinners. We are children of God. Absolutely. But I'm just starting from the, from, I guess, in the most basic kind of way to say there is prayer that God accepts. There is prayer that God does not accept. And it's going to start with this. God does not listen to sinners. We are not sinners. We are children of God. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, so there are two different kinds of people. And at times, it's not that I can become either of these people, right? But I can choose to function as one of these different things. Sometimes identity, perceived identity, is one of the biggest factors in our prayer life. Who do you perceive yourself to be? When you approach God, what do you think he thinks about you? How do you think he sees you? How do you think he's evaluating you? If you're approaching God in prayer as if you're a sinner and you're functioning and living like, I'm just a sinner saved by grace, then your prayer life will be affected by that perceived identity and how you see yourself. It doesn't mean you change in the sight of God. It doesn't mean your core identity has changed. That is still intact because it's rooted in Jesus. Your, your base level core identity and, and self-worth and value and, and all of that is wrapped up in Jesus alone and what he's done for you. So you can either be a worshiper of God and do his will and God listens to that person or you can be a sinner separated from God under sin, under penalty, without Jesus and God does not listen to sinners. But at times I can still find myself thinking like and living like one of these things. And while my thoughts and my life don't inherently change who I am in the sight of God, that does affect how I approach him and what I end up praying. So there is a category in scripture for God does not listen to sinners. And God does listen to those who worship him and do his will, presumably those who are saints and children of God. 1 Peter 3.12, for the eyes of the Lord, they are on the righteous. And we need to qualify what that means and what that even looks like. What does it mean for the eyes of the Lord to be on the righteous? Well, there's a number of ways that idea can be expressed. There are a number of ways that idea can play out and what that, you know, can entail. But specifically in this context, the way that Peter is going to be uh, working with, what is this quotation? 
Whoever desires to love life, cited from Psalm chapter 34, 12 through 16. So it would be in our best interest to go back to the original passage being quoted. Look at the context overall. Read the chapter. But for now, the eyes of the Lord being on the righteous means this. His ears are open to their prayer. These two ideas at least are connected, if not in some sense, even synonymous. For God having favor upon the righteous and looking upon them, his eyes uh, almost like Abel, bringing an offering, God goes, I regard him. I have favor towards him and his sacrifice. That kind of idea. It's acceptable. We are acceptable. For God to accept and have favor upon a person who is righteous in this context means that his ear is actually open to their prayer, which doesn't mean that God doesn't hear certain things. It's with this intent to act upon the request of those who are praying. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So guess what? There are those who do evil and God's face is against them. Uh, God does not have favor upon them to have an open ear towards their prayers, but for the righteous, he does. Okay, so this is, this is the most basic way to explain this idea is there is a clear distinction between the way that God relates with believers and how God relates with unbelievers or how God relates with the prayers or perceived desires of the believer versus the unbeliever. Okay. Psalm chapter 6 verse 9. Uh, David will say. I believe this is a David. Psalm of David. Yes. Yes. Okay. Psalm chapter 6 verse 4. It says I'm weary. Uh, this can't be the right verse. Sorry. Uh, verse 9. The Lord <laughs> has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. And t- contextually there's nothing beyond that. There's just nothing more to be said. Except that David understands his prayer can either be accepted and heard and regarded, or it cannot be. But in this case, he's confident that God has heard and accepted his prayer. There's an acceptance, there's favor. Okay, let's keep moving. Psalm chapter 17, verse 1. Hear a just cause, O Lord, and attend to my cry. Okay, so for God to hear is not for the sound to travel into his uh, anthropomorphic ears, but to say, hey, God is acting upon, listening with intent to act, and attending to the cry of his people. There's a just cause being brought up, and God is, the the psalmist here, David is saying, attend to my cry for justice. Give ear to my prayer from lips of deceit. Now let's pause and really think through what it is that David is mentioning in passing while he's praying. God, hear the just cause, attend to my cry, give ear to my prayer. He essentially repeats the same petition three times in three different ways. But then he tags on. The last thing he's going to say is, my lips, the lips that are voicing this cry and voicing this request and voicing this prayer, those lips are free of deceit. And we just got to think through why that would even be a factor in David praying or even David considering whether or not God is going to answer his cry Why does he even consider the fact that his lips are free of deceit? Which by no means says that David is perfect. Uh, By no means is David saying, I have no issues morally. I am without sin. But he's saying, as far as I can tell, as as far as he he can recall as he's living, my lips have been free of deceit. And so that actually becomes a factor and a part of how David considers Not just what he's praying and how he's praying, but whether or not God is going to regard what he's praying. Okay. Job chapter 16, um, verse 17. It says this. 
This is interesting. Although there is no violence in my hands, I mean, you can just go back and just read the whole surrounding context, but the idea here is that he says, my prayer is pure. There's a purity. Like David said in Psalm 17, there's a there's a, a lack of deceit. As far as I can tell and recall, there's no dishonesty and deceit and and intent to, you know, uh, manipulate and cheat. There's, there's none of that on my lips, Lord. So would you hear my cry? Same idea as here in Job chapter 16, verse 17, when he says, my prayer is pure. Now we got to think about these things. Why is it that there is a category for people when they're praying to go, whoa, how have I been living? Or even what is the kind of prayer I'm voicing? Not only is my prayer acceptable, right? Not only is this prayer in line with the will of God generally in his, in his word and, and his revealed character, but let me consider how I've been functioning. Is there deceit on my lips? Is my prayer actually offered up in purity? Not only is the request itself pure, but I would actually say, he says, there's no violence in my hands, which is to say, when he says my prayer is pure, it's not just the words he's saying, but the life that is attached to the prayer he's bringing. That is pure. And there's nothing wrong with acknowledging the fact that you've been walking with God, you've been walking with him as closely as you can tell. And it doesn't mean you're without sin and you're perfect. And in the sight of God, of course we are. But in lifestyle, practically, right, none of us are perfectly living without any kind of moral issue in thought, attitude, word, deed, none of that. You know, we have, you know, mistakes that we make. And for the psalmist, for Job, for Peter talking about God's eyes are on those who are righteous and is, who, you know, open their heart to his, to pray, there, there's this category of acceptable prayers versus unacceptable prayers. Let me show you one more thing. Before we get to the whole, hey, there are indeed 10, at least 10 things you can do. And I don't want to overwhelm you and make you like just jot these things down and bullet point list. I just got to do these things and God will do whatever I want. But I really want you to be thinking through like, do you have a personal category for acceptable prayers versus unacceptable? Not just what I'm asking for, not just how I'm asking for those things, but how have I been living and what is the lifestyle I have that is attached to the prayers that I'm praying? There's a biblical category, secondly, for uh, living a life that is consistent with your prayers. Not just, I'm praying for something good and my life has been generally lived good, but um, me praying for God to do his part while I do my part. And I think that often gets lost in translation when we say, I'm going to pray for something. Sometimes our backs are up against the wall and there's truly nothing more we can do about our request. We are helpless. There's nothing more to do. Kind of like when Moses and the people of Israel are standing at the Red Sea and Moses, he'll look at the people crying out, complaining, and he'll say, shh, quiet, just stand there, do nothing and watch God work your salvation. There are times where that is going to happen. But for the majority of our prayer life and just partnering with God and living with God, there is going to be something you and I are called to do. There is a part to play. There is a role to play for us. And then God will do what we can't do. That's what prayer is. Prayer is not just a Hail Mary where it's like, I'm going to do nothing and expect God to do everything. Again, sometimes your back is up against the wall. You're helpless. You've done all you can. And God is going to do a lot that you can't. But other times, God is inviting you. Hey, bring your request to me 
and then do what you can about that. A very practical way of explaining this would be, to illustrate this would be, um, you know, I'm praying God would give me a job. Lord, bring me a job. Now, if I have a sense, God is saying, do nothing. And it's not just you having an excuse to be lazy and making a, an up an excuse to sit in complacency and I'm just trusting God. If God has actually told you, do nothing but pray, then sure, this is a little different. But for most of us, when we pray, God, would you give me a job? I'm going to do whatever I can put in my resume, call different jobs around my area, look for, you know, places that are hiring that I think would be, I'm going to do my part. And then I'm going to pray that God would do what I can't, which is to get me in the right place or to direct me to the right person or for the person, the hiring manager to, to look upon me with favor and go, this person's going to be a good fit. I'm going to trust God to do what I can't. But I'm going to do what I can. And, and there's just that category in scripture where people are not just throwing a Hail Mary going, God's going to do everything. But they're living a life that is consistent with their prayer request. You might say they're living towards their petitions. They're living towards their requests. And they're doing their part and trusting God to do what they cannot. Nehemiah 4 verse 9 is a good example. Uh, Nehemiah building the wall just heard that people are plotting to come and fight against him. Nehemiah knows God has called him to build this wall and to build up the people and to bring security and confidence back to the Jewish nation starting in Jerusalem. And then the enemies of, of God are coming together to plot to fight against them. And, and this is what Nehemiah says. He's, he says, we prayed, we prayed to our God, okay, and we set a guard. Now, some of you, sadly, would look at that and you'd say, Nehemiah does not trust God. If he did, he wouldn't feel a need to put up any kind of guard or to even equip his men with swords and to stay up, have people watching. He would trust God. I think for many of us, we need to redefine what it means to trust God. We need to reframe that idea a bit and go back to the scriptures and make sure that your concept of trusting God is consistent with who he is. For Nehemiah to pray... And trust God means he's going to do his job and his part and trust that God will cover that and God will do what Nehemiah cannot, which is to ensure protection. I'll tell you what, Nehemiah can put all the necessary defensive measurements in place and take all the precaution necessary and everything is set. And God could look upon that and go, yeah, I'm, I'm going to allow the enemy to come in anyway. Because all my efforts could be in vain if in opposition to the will of God. So Nehemiah knows that. He prays and he goes, Lord, essentially, look upon them, protect us. And then he does what he can. We see the same idea in Acts chapter 4, verse 39 or 29 through 31. The apostles have just been brought into the Sanhedrin, I believe. They've been at least brought before the chief priests and the elders. Sorry. And then they come back after being told by those high authorities, those religious elite, they've been told by them, do not talk about this Yeshua anymore. No more talking about Jesus. Stop it. And then they leave. Here's what they do. They come together as the body and they pray. Look at what they pray. This is very interesting. Not only does Peter and the, and the boys quote Psalm chapter 2, but let's start in verse 29. They say, now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue 
to speak your word with all boldness. What's the assumption there? They intend to continue speaking the word of God and preaching the gospel. They intend to do that. They will do that. They know their role. They know what their job is. They understand the responsibility. Okay? But he says, they say, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to us to continue. Look upon their threats. So what are they asking God to do? What they cannot do. God, you look upon their threats. You essentially enable us to continue preaching. And we will speak your word with boldness. While you stretch out your hand to perform, to heal and signs and and wonders and are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, watch this, the place in which they were gathered was shaken. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Did they fill themselves? No. God filled them in response to their prayer. And what do they do in response to being filled with the Spirit? They go and speak the word of God with boldness, which might be another way of saying they were filled with the Spirit. I mean, the list can go on and on. There there are so many examples in Scripture of people who pray, and then they intend to do something that is towards what they're requesting, that is in line with what they're requesting, that is consistent with that. You can look at Esther, how she's about to go. She's decided to go before the king um, of Persia, and she's going to ask for his favor and ask for him to do something about Mordecai's evil plan. And, and she asks, or not Mordecai, uh, Haman's evil plan, and she asks her cousin Mordecai to have the people pray, and, and they pray, but she intends to do something. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 11. We can go there. I can show you passage after passage where Nehemiah hears that Jerusalem is in such um, a distressful, pitiful state that he wants to do something about it. And he goes, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. What is his prayer? And to the prayer of your servants who do delight to fear your name. And what's his prayer? Give success to your servant today. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man. There are two things he's asking for, essentially. Hey, here's what I want. Lord, grant me success. What does that mean? Let me have mercy in the sight of the king. Okay, the king of Persia looks upon Nehemiah, his cupbearer. Nehemiah has prayed. And he goes and asks the king for permission to go to Jerusalem and help build the walls. And the king goes, absolutely. But what Nehemiah did is he prayed and then he acted. He covered his action that was consistent with God's heart and will. He covered that in prayer that God would do what he could not through what he was doing, through what he could do. So again, all that to say there's a biblical category for acceptable prayers versus unacceptable prayers, or acceptable people in the sight of God with prayers versus unacceptable people who have requests of a higher power or whatever. This is the classic Abel versus Cain scenario, um, where, yes, God accepts us as people of God in the sight of him. It's through Jesus we're accepted. But then the secondary question as we live our lives is, is what I'm praying acceptable? Is how I'm living acceptable? Now, let's disconnect that from who I am. That doesn't affect how God looks at me or whether he accepts me. But who I am should influence how I pray and how I live. Those two things should be the overflow of who I am in Christ. And so there's a way in which we're called to live consistent with our prayer requests. So here are the 10 things you and I can be doing right now 
for those of you that are really wondering, um, and, and, and again, I want to state this one more time. I'm not telling you what you need to do to manipulate God into doing what you want. This is not the conversation. We are not, all caps, bold, underlined, 12-point Roman, Times New Roman font. We are not manipulating God to do what we want. If anything, I'm telling you 10 things you can be doing to align yourself with God's will and God's heart and God's desires and God's overall plan and what he's doing in the world. We need to come under him. We need to line up with him. So the first thing out of the 10 things we can be doing today, right now, to begin seeing more fruit in our prayer life or to see more, I don't like the term, but it gets the point across, to see more results in our prayer life is number one, stay close to Jesus. Stay close to Jesus. And this is not just a generic, like, stay, it's, everything I'm going to show you has a, has a cause-effect statement in the passage where it's like, do this and your prayers will be answered. So, um, uh, John 15, 7. Jesus says this himself. If you abide in me and, and my words abide in you, which you could say, Part of the way we abide in Jesus is that his words abide in us. Absolutely. I would never disconnect them, but they could be distinct. Okay, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, those are the conditions. That's the if. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Seems pretty straightforward, right? You could you could you could map out some some math equation. Right? Here here's the equation for you geometry nerds, for you calculus nerds, for you algebra 2 nerds. Abiding Plus, praying equals God listening. It seems pretty clear that God listens, not accepts the person, not favors the person, not loves the person. I, I'm ta- just, just take all that out. I'm talking just for now, not to say God doesn't do those things, but when I say God listens, you might assume, oh, that mean God l- means God loves. For God to listen means God loves. No, he, he loves irrespective of whether he's listening, right? I don't need God listening or not listening. doesn't mean he loves or not loves. I'm just saying God is here listening with the intent to act upon someone's prayer. God listens to those who abide in him. And when you abide in Jesus, which is your choice, but at the same time, it's a condition of life and existence. When you abide in Jesus, you actually start to ask for the things God wants to do in your life. You start to receive the will of God more clearly in your mind so you know what to pray. All, all of this, it, abiding in Jesus goes so deep that I had to do a, a two-hour message just on abiding because the concept gets so uh, watered down and confusing and people don't even know what they're talking about when we use the word abide anymore. Just for, for simple English terminology, Abide means to continue in, to stay, to tarry. If you want to use the King James, we're tarrying. If you abide, continue in Jesus, which means his words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you, which means what? My prayers are more likely to be aligned with God's will when the more his word is uh, filling my heart. 
which means you and I have risk. And I'm, I'm not reducing abiding down to just opening the Bible, but for the sake of simplifying this idea, the more God's word is filling your heart, which comes through sermons, which comes through solid sound teaching, which comes through YouTube videos. And primarily, this is why I end with this, primarily it comes from your personal quiet time to open the Bible and say, God, give me understanding. God, show me who you are. The more his word is filling your life and your heart, it can come through worship, conversations, fellowship, church. I mean, the, so many ways the word, you can have it read to you. The more his word fills your heart, the more likely you will be praying the will of God for your life. And this is, people want a formulaic way of approaching God. And I did give you a formula, but people want like this exact, tell me I can do this and I will absolutely get these results. Whereas the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Job come in to go, that's not how life works, buddy. There are some things, some things, where it's like, you do this, this will absolutely happen. Where, you know, an example would be, if you believe in Jesus, he will absolutely save you. But there are many things that fit under this category of, hey, do this. And you're more likely to have this kind of experience. You're more likely to experience this outcome. And you and I get frustrated. We're like, no, tell me I can do something and it will absolutely work out a certain way. And that's just not how God engages humanity. In some ways and in some senses, sure. But in entirety, is that the only way God engages humanity? No. So when I say abide, some of you are already thinking through this going, so I just need to read the Bible more and then I will absolutely be praying 100% of the time God's will and I'll always get what I want. And we want to make it black or white. Yes or no, 100% yes, 100% no. And it's just this, I'm giving you 10 things you can be doing to increase the likelihood and the chances that you're praying the will of God for your life. Is that helpful? Yes, absolutely. There's wisdom. There's wisdom in this. So fill your life and your heart as much as you can. Think about how much you fill your heart and mind with social media and mindless scrolling and YouTube videos that they're not bad and they're not necessarily good. They're just not useful. They're, they literally do nothing. They, they waste time. Think about how much time you're reading books that actually you're like, well, it helps me fall asleep at night. But the kind of material you're reading is not exactly what you want to fill your heart and mind with. Or think about the music you're listening to on a constant daily basis. That playlist you go to when it's just you and you're like, I can play this because no one's going to judge me. And you play it. What do you constantly, think about what you're filling your heart and your mind with. You and I are vessels. We are containers. And yes, we're filled with the Spirit eternally and, and perfectly and personally. But there is also the call on us to choose what is it that I'm going to fill myself with now. And I'm just saying fill yourself with more of God's Word and you'll find that your heart matches God's heart even more. The second thing we can be doing is, and this is a general way of saying it, I wrote it down like this, know and pray God's general revealed will. Know 
and pray what you already know is true about God. So when I say, um, you know, um, pray according to God's will in First John chapter five, this is typically uh, going to frustrate people. That's what typically happens here, is we read this and something inside of us wants to defend God and fix this because we don't experience this. And we're like, well, what John is saying there, I I don't experience. So I got to defend God, come in with all my apologetics and fix this problem. And I just um, don't do that right here. You don't need to defend him. You don't need to reconcile your human experience with what God says you will and I'm not experiencing it so God's word is not the problem you don't need to do that let's just read the text this is the confidence that we have toward him so there is appropriate confidence for believers right here's the confidence if so so in other words this is not just something uh, that you can have this is something that is appropriate for you to have I'm not going to go so far as to say God is instructing and commanding you to have this, but I will say this is at least appropriate. It makes sense that believers should have this confidence. Here's the confidence. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, right? this knowing is the confidence in verse 14. If we know that he's hearing with the intent to act, and he hears what I'm asking for, then I can know, here's that confidence again, I can know that I'm going to have the request that I've asked of him, or we have the request. This is a collective letter. I don't want to individualize this unnecessarily. We, as the people of God, can know what I'm praying is his will, so I can know he hears me, and I can know I'm going to have it. And that's just not... When we read that, okay, you and I go, hold on, time out. I ain't seen that in my life. This has not been historically true for me. That I, 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 I've had confidence that it's his will. I look at his word and I go, this is good. This ain't harming nobody. This is good. This glorifies your name. This benefits your church. So I, so I had this confidence that he's going to act upon it. And then I had the confidence that I was going to receive the request. It never happened. And sure, we can say, well, not yet, brother. Like, it could be coming your way. Maybe God's just delaying it. That could be an, a possibility. Is that the only possibility? No. But I will say that possibly it's not as uh, literal and straightforward as we, like I said, we want to paint this picture of if I do this, then absolutely 100% of the time. But sometimes I, th- I have this confidence that I'm praying God's will that I shouldn't have. So when I say we should have confidence, I'm saying we should have appropriate confidence at the appropriate times. Some of us have incredible confidence about things that, frankly, you shouldn't be praying in such with such a confident, God's going to do this. And for some of us, you know, we have like a, I'm not going to bring in prosperity gospel kind of stuff, but... You know, if I'm believing God to give me a specific house in a specific area for a specific price, and then I and then I'm like, God, you're gonna do that. I I have. Where does that confidence come from? 
does that confidence come from what I know of God and his word and he's generous and he gives what we don't deserve and he's kind and sometimes he gives extravagantly? Does that confidence come from what I've seen God do for other people? Does that confidence come from my own just desire for that? And I'm like, I want it so bad that I'm just going to muster up confidence and attach you to this and you're going to do it. Where does your confidence come from? So I think we need to evaluate where is my confidence in this prayer coming from? Is it rooted in Jesus? Is it rooted in what I know is true of God's heart and his will and his character and his son and his gospel? What is this confidence rooted in? And then I can better, you know, evaluate whether or not I should even be having this confidence about this request, if it's even of God. Because I know we just want to paint with such broad strokes and say, God wants me to have confidence, so anytime I pray, I'm going to have confidence. You should not be confident God is going to give you an opportunity to cheat on your spouse. You should not, you know what I mean? Like things like that where it's obvious you shouldn't have, but there's appropriate confidence that should be rooted in Jesus and my knowledge of his word and who he is, which assumes what? I can't have confidence that something is God's will if I don't know what scripture says about God's will. God has revealed his general will and desires for humanity. That's enough to inform what I'm praying personally for my life so that I can have a better sense of whether or not this is likely God's will. So, so my number two, know God's general revealed will and then pray that. So even if it's like, pray that? Yeah, like what do you know God wants to do? He wants to save people. Pray for the salvation of people. Okay, what else? I know that God wants to transform me and make me more like, pray for that. Okay, what else? Go down the line. I know that God wants to bring his kingdom to, pray for that. And then the more you pray for what you know absolutely is God's will, I think you get a better sense of whether or not your personal requests for your life are really what God wants to do. So if I start off strong in my prayers and I just start praying everything I know God wants to do, just it's obvious in scripture, then by the time I get to the things that I'm not sure God wants to do, I'll have better discernment about that thing. Does that make sense? So number three, what we can be doing is take pleasure in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. And I know that some of us, we go, well, delight yourself. Can I really do that? You can. You can. You choose what you delight in. I'm not saying you decide what you're attracted to. I'm not saying you decide what you're enamored by and what you're impressed by and, and what you take, what you find value in. But I can choose to... Um, I don't know. Let's take, for example, my son playing Legos. He delights himself in Legos. Does he control the fact that Legos are attractive to him? And he's just impressed by what you can build and, and he's, he's entertained. Does he control that? No. But he controls whether or not he's going to continue playing with Legos to feed that desire and feed that attraction and feed that like I love doing this so when, when the scripture says in Psalm 37 4 delight yourself in the Lord there is a call and a command for us to actually invest into our relationship with God 
so that we actually begin to see that, ooh, he is good. I have tasted and seen, and I want more. It's kind of like when you go to a buffet, and you, you, you see something, and you're like, oh, I'll try it. And you taste, and you're like, dang, why has no one ever told me about this? And you just ditch everything else on your plate, and you go back for more of that. You're choosing to continue uh, going back to what is it, what it is that you're what it is that uh, you know uh, that you were attracted to, um, you know what appeals to me to eat this food, the texture, the taste, the smell. So I can either choose to do nothing about it, or I can continue going back for more. And that's the idea here: is are you going back each day for more of God? Because we choose when when I say that God has given us an open heaven. I like to say that a lot because what I'm essentially saying and what I believe scripture is telling us is that God has given you essentially as much access to him as you personally would like. It's an open heaven. How much do you want to know him? How much do you want to, how close do you want to be to God? How, how much do you want your heart to align with his? How familiar do you want to become in a good way with the character and the heart of God? When I choose to delight myself in something, right, I can choose to um, focus more on that, pay more attention to that, uh, spend more time doing that. I can choose to, like, do other things that actually encourage my delight in that thing. And that's what I'm saying. If you delight yourself in the Lord, here's the promise. He'll give you the desires of your heart. And the very basic meaning of this passage, the plain, simple reading, is that when I desire more of God and I feed more of that desire, it's just this continual cycle of goodness. I want more of him, so I'm going to go after more of him, and I'm going to get more of him, which will cause me to want more of him so that I go after more of him. And I, you see how it just comes back into full circle. And that's the idea here is when you find yourself in that beautiful cycle of wanting God and going after him and and then you get more of him, it just increases the momentum of that pursuit. You just find yourself pursuing him more and faster and with more passion and with more love and you end up getting what it is that you desire, which is him. And then along the way, if you desire other things, which are secondary to God and tertiary to God, those things will more likely be consistent with God's character and will because you firstly wanted him. And it's my choice, it's your choice, it's our choice to feed our craving. And almost like we have a choice to feed certain appetites and to develop certain palates. You can actually like develop a, a, a taste for things. You can develop, it doesn't mean like I'm attracted to that or not, but the more I like, if I'm like, mm, that tastes pretty good, I can, I can follow that. I can explore other things that kind of uh, touch on that. And then you find yourself, well, wanting that more and craving it more. So they say the more sugar you have, the more you crave sugar. And God is exponentially more in a, in a better way, obviously in a healthy way that won't give you diabetes. But the idea with God is I want more of him. It's appropriate. It's good. He actually satisfies in a way that nothing else in this world does. He actually comes through on what he says he'll give you. And then I get it and I'm, oh, so every time I go after you and desire you, you give me more of you. That's exactly what Jesus says when he says, ask, seek, and knock. If you ask, you'll get. He'll give it to you. If you seek, um, you'll find. If you knock, the door will be open. You're wanting him. 
And then as you do, your primary desire for God begins to inform the other desires beneath him. So that you start going, I actually don't want that other thing anymore as much as I want holiness. I'm actually not as, uh, I don't know, obsessed with getting the right occupation anymore or the right property or the right backyard as, as much as I just want more of him. And so you can see how whatever is your primary desire and however much you feed that is going to inform whatever else is underneath it. It's going to trickle down so that my love and desire for God should trickle down to all my other desires. Take delight in the Lord. The fourth thing is this, go after good fruit. Initially, I, I, I labeled this produce the fruit of God's character, but then I was reminded softly by the Spirit that you don't control the fruit you produce. I don't control how much fruit I produce. I don't control whether or not I produce fruit. This goes back to 1 Corinthians when Paul will say, look, me and Apollos, like I watered, and he came and planted or vice versa. But ultimately, like all our efforts are in vain if God doesn't bring the growth. Same is true for our life. I don't control whether or not or even how much fruit I produce as God's job. My job is to abide. So once again, this goes back to pursuit. Are you pursuing more good fruit? Do you want to produce more of God's good fruit in your life? The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, all the other ones that I forgot, if I forgot any. That's the fruit primarily God is concerned with. Now, there's other fruit, of course, which is like the good things God wants to accomplish through you and and the people that God wants to impact through your life. But that's going to happen with primarily the good fruit of the Spirit, good character. Do you want to be more like Jesus? That is a a genuine question. I'm not just asking you. I'm asking you to ask yourself. Do you actually, truly, in your heart of hearts, want to be more like Christ? Do you want to be more patient and more kind and more understanding? Do you want to be less controlled by anger? Do you want to be more pure so that when you look at women, sisters in Christ, you're not lusting? Do you want to be transformed into the image of Christ? Do you want sanctification? If, if, if you can honestly say, I'm not really sure, like I don't know or even know, then that gives me a good insight into your prayer life. Not to say that I'm the judge, right? I'm just saying, in general, that is an indication of your prayer life. That will be reflected in your prayer life. That will affect your prayer life and what you choose to pray. Your pursuits, your treasures, your ultimate value system, all of that affects what I will end up praying. So again, it is so much easier to pray the will of God when we're already living out his will for our lives. Like, I'm telling you, your pursuits and desires and ambitions and concerns and and what you value is going to align with your prayer life. It's going to be revealed in your prayer life. So if I want good fruit, then my prayers will be consistent with that. I didn't read the verse, John 15, 16. You did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And this is not just true of the 12 or the 11 apostles. And that your fruit should abide so that, it's an interesting conjunction, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. 
So you're telling me the father giving me what I ask for in his name depends on me producing good fruit? So if, look, that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide. Now there's one way to read this, which might be a little different, but doesn't disprove what I just said. One way to read this is the fruit I'm bearing, right, is expressed through the prayers being answered. In other words, one of the ways I'm bearing fruit is by the fact that I'm seeing my prayers answered. That's fruit. That's awesome. You could say the seed was my prayer and the fruit was that God realized that. Sure. But we can't disconnect that from the idea, okay? That good fruit of the Spirit and good godly character and sanctification, that is primarily what God is after, is that you would be shaped and transformed and molded more into the image of Jesus. That's what he wants. Is that what you want? And if that is, are you pursuing that? Or are you lackadaisically just sitting back, life is good, partner with God, enjoy life, but don't settle for less than what God has for you. There's more. There's so much more. And then when you're bearing fruit that remains, apparently the result of that is that I'll ask for things in Jesus' name that the Father will give me. And I don't think this is God going, hmm, before I decide to answer thy prayer request, let's see how much fruit you've brought me this week. Bring me thy basket. And then you bring it and you're like, three apples and two oranges. One of them is moldy. And God goes, hmm, what did you ask for again? I know all things. I'm kidding. A new a wife? Mm, not enough fruit. Come back next week. I don't think that's how it works. Rather, what it is is, hey, when I'm bearing fruit that is consistent with God's character, then my desires and my prayer requests will be consistent with that too. But if I don't see good fruit being produced in my life, then that will be reflected in the things I ask God for and the, the requests I bring him, which frankly won't likely be things he wants to answer. Does that make sense? Okay. The fifth thing you and I can do, which is actually a don't do, is don't live in unrepentant sin. Isaiah 59 verse 2. Now I understand this is for the nation. This is for the people of God in the old covenant. I don't think this specific way God relates with his people can be limited to the nation of Israel in the Old Covenant. I think this is just a, a, a consistently universal way God relates with his people in every season of human history. Watch. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Now, can I ever be separated by my sins now that I'm in Christ? Romans 8 would tell me no. Heck no. Heck no can't be separated from God. Are you out of your mind? You're in Christ. Ain't nothing. Now, some of you disagree. You believe that you can walk away from your salvation or whatever. I'm, I'm working from the premise and the assumption that eternal security is not conditional. Well, it's conditional being Jesus. And since he doesn't change, neither does my position in Christ. So I don't believe separation here, spiritually, for us in Christ, is something we should ever fear, right? But the separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Now, remember how I said in the beginning that pretty much there's two categories 
we're working with. And possibly another one I haven't thought of. There's acceptable prayers and there's unacceptable prayers, right? And there's people who are acceptable to God and people who are unacceptable to God. Let me say it like this. You can be a person that is accepted by God and still bring him a prayer that is not acceptable. And that doesn't mean you're rejected. It just means what you wanted has been rejected and denied. But you are still accepted. Right? So this is not about like, oh, I need to be have my prayers accepted so that I can be accepted. No, you are accepted, which is the only reason God will ever accept any of your prayers. So now that I'm accepted in Jesus, loved and approved and welcomed and chosen and sanctified and righteous and holy and perfect and blameless in his sight through Christ, I can bring requests to God. And God will either accept or reject. He'll say yes, he'll say no, or he'll say not yet. But apparently, even as a believer, there can be requests God does not regard. He does not hear. That's the idea here. The separation Israel as a nation is experiencing because of their sin, of course, goes deeper into exile and, and such. But the, the dimension I want to focus on is this. Um, he doesn't hear. He has hidden his face. And that's the separation here. And I think at times, like I already talked about in the episode, if you disagree with my the things I'm saying, go watch two weeks ago, three weeks ago, where we talked about confession and repentance and prayer, okay? That will be very helpful. But I do believe that even as believers, there can be things God does not regard, and I'm still accepted, but my prayer is not, and sometimes it's actually because of, or it's reflected in, the fact that I'm living in unrepentant sin. Let me take you to Psalm 66, 18 to show you that this is not just a national Old Covenant issue with the people of Israel. This is personally David will say this himself. He's not speaking as part of the people of God or as a nation in this sense. Right now, he's just speaking on an individual level between me and God and my faith. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Now, again, I don't think this is that, um, I don't believe this is like us coming to God again. And he's like, oh, you got a prayer request. You want a new job? Let's see what you got. And you're like, I got a basket full of, again, two apples and two oranges. And he's like, what's underneath it? And you're like, uh, nothing. He's like, oh, move it all the way. That's a lot of sin in that basket, man. You think I'm going to answer your... Look at all that sin in the... I don't think that's how this works. God does not regard our sin when considering whether or not our prayer is something to be accepted or, or denied or something that is good. It's just the will of God is true nonetheless. The will of God is true nonetheless. But when I am living in unrepentant sin, here's the problem. If we've already established that it's easier to pray his will when I'm already living out his revealed will, right... Then if I'm not living in his will, which is what God has revealed, if I'm not already doing what I know to do, why would I think my prayers would be any different? If my life is majority disobedience, kind of rebellion, not listening to God, why would I think my prayers would have a completely different heart? My life and my prayers prayers together um, reflect each other. You can often tell, even in different seasons or even just throughout the day, you can tell like where you're at attitude-wise and heart-wise based on like the, the, the cries of your heart and what you're, how you're talking to God and how you're approaching Him. But nonetheless, 
I just want to say this. There is a category for, hey, if you're living in unrepentant sin, it's not that God has condemned you or you're unforgiven. It's that, well, you have chosen to close the blinds, not allow the sunlight to shine through so you can experience it. So just open up those blinds through confession. Bring that to God. Let that burden be lifted off you so your conscience, you can live with a clean conscience and go live the way God has called you to. And I believe it's not that that holiness or lack of holiness is a factor in God deciding whether he's going to accept your prayer. I think it's that when I'm living in sin, unrepentant sin specifically, that my prayers will likely be, uh, you know, worldly and kind of match that. I don't, I don't think I can have like this magnificently holy, beautiful, vibrant prayer life where it's I'm always praying the will of God and then I live like hell outside of that. I don't I don't see how that's even a possibility in, in reality, in, in scripture, in history, I don't see that. Um, but we but we want to get on our high horse and say, my prayer life is more vibrant than yours. And, and yet you treat people like garbage, Sharice, you know. Um, so I'm just saying, living in unrepentant sin, evaluate those things. And I do believe that you'll see your desires begin to change, your prayer requests begin to change, because your life has changed Um and that's good. Sixth thing is don't live or pray double-minded. Meaning this, James 1, 4 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. That's a promise. We can be confident. We can claim that. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. And you go, ah, doubting, doubting is, is acceptable. Well, the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Do you want to be unstable and tossed around by anything life throws at you? Whether it's doctrinally or experientially or the condition of your life or how you feel in the morning. Do you just want to be someone that's tossed around by whatever it is that wants to throw you around like a rag doll? Or do you want to be solid and stable? Apparently faith is what makes us stable. Trust, confidence, taking God at his word makes us stable. Oh, sounds like Matthew chapter 7. And then doubt makes us very shaky and unstable and easily blown around. The person who has doubt must not suppose he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's actually a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. I think the word double-minded, it gets the point across. But I'll say it like this, just so we're clear. Double-minded here means it's referring to divided loyalty. It's not just that God said something and I'm not sure if it's true, It's, I don't live like God's word is true. In some areas of my life, I have knowledge of God's word, but I don't actually build my that aspect of my life on that knowledge. I'm kind of withholding that from God. But there are other areas of my life that I'm building around certain scriptures, and we kind of piece things together, and we're like, I like that scripture. I'm going to apply that to my finances, but not my relationships. I love that one. Let me pull that one in. That's a good one. That's going to apply to my wife when she's being mean to me, but not me when I'm being mean to her. And we start to take scripture and then we just, wherever it's convenient, wherever it's like, I think I like this. And then we just, we decide where scripture has the authority in our lives and what scripture has authority in our lives. And I think James is more touching on the fact that you're unstable. You're usually knocked over when you're kind of doing that. It's not just I doubt and it's hard to believe. It's you refuse to build your life on what God has said is stable and solid and to trust him. So you have divided loyalties. That's why it gets into James that will talk about divided loyalty with the world and with God. And I think when you live and pray double-minded, you're, it's really hard to, f- 
to find a solid grip, a solid stance to take when you're praying. You, you can't really find any ground to establish a request on or be confident God's listening. Proverbs 28.9 is kind of another scripture to go to. If one turns away his ear from hearing the law again, not referring to like, oh, I forgot, I tried so hard. It's like, I don't care what God says. Well, even that man's prayer is an abomination. Which, pfft, forget just not accepted. We're talking a straight up abomination. Yikes. That's some harsh language. Might be something to explore there. Seventh thing is aim to obey God more each day. Like, desire to please him, intend to please him. First John 3.22, uh, Beloved, if our heart doesn't condemn us, we have confidence before God. Amen. But sometimes, like, my own heart will condemn me, so what do I do with that? Go watch the message on forgiveness, or not forgiveness, well, God's forgiveness. Go watch the message in this prayer series on confession and repentance. Whatever we ask, we receive from him because, because we do what pleases him. And this is not a, I want you guys to get out of the mindset that prayer is transactional. I bring God, like, like, like my, my good works become currency. And it's like, uh, got about 10 bucks, God, 10 good works this week. What can that get me? And God's like, hmm, possibly like enough gas for the week, but nothing more. And we, we make prayer down, reduce it down to this transactional thing instead of partnership. And I really want to get the point across Prayer is about partnership, not transactions, not me buying and him selling. And let's see if I have enough money. But there is this nature of what we ask, we receive once again because we're doing what honors God and pleases him, which is laid out clearly in his word in the commandments. So if I just do what God says, I'm more likely to pray what he wants. And I can have confidence and I'll receive what God has for me. It goes back to obedience does affect your prayer life. John 9, 31, if anyone's a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. Same idea. Jeremiah forty two twenty. This is not necessarily proving my point, but this is just more of a case study on what this looks like. The remnant in Judah, Jerusalem, are with Jeremiah the prophet. And they're really wondering, hey, should we go to Egypt? Can you ask God? Sure, Jeremiah says. Um, and they say, look, watch what they say. Whether it's good or bad, we will obey the voice of the Lord our God. Sneak peek into what's going to happen. They're not going to do that. And it will be well with us when we obey the voice of the Lord our God. The problem is their lips are saying something that their heart denies. They don't really intend to obey. They don't, they're just this lip service. There's no heart level intent to actually like, I don't know. At the end of 10 days, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Essentially, Jeremiah goes, uh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, if you will remain in this land, it'll be good. If you don't, it'll be bad. Don't go to Egypt. Do not. It'll be bad. You'll die. You'll, be vi you'll regret it so much. And then the Lord says, um, what is it? For thus says the Lord of hosts, 
the God of Israel, uh, as my anger and my wrath were poured out on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, you'll become an ex- execration. You see that the Lord has said to you, don't go to Egypt. You've sent me to the Lord saying, pray for us. And whatever the Lord, our God is, we'll do it says, and I have this, de- I've declared it to you, but you've not obeyed the voice of the Lord. Now, therefore know for certain you're going to die. And then they go, we don't like what Jeremiah says, so let's just say he's lying. Does that not sound like our culture today? Instead of actually having a conversation and voicing disagreements and thinking through what someone else is saying, we go, hmm, I don't like what you're saying, so I'm just going to accuse you of lying and, 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 and just defame your character. Okay, that's what they're doing here. And it doesn't work out well. That's the idea. We need to learn as people of God to not just lip service God and go, I really want, no, no, no. If God tells you to do something, are you willing to do it? And if you say all day you are, and then it comes down to it, like real boots on the ground, God has presented you an option to do what you said you would do in your prayer time and you don't, it just doesn't work out well. King Saul, Pharaoh, Judas, these are people who had no intent to obey, but they had lip service. They did. Judas, I've, I've, you know, killed an innocent man, Pharaoh. Mo- Moses, uh, t- tell God I'm sorry. Ask for forgiveness, King Saul. Samuel, come with me to honor me. I'm sorry, I changed my mind. Lip service. No heart level, true intent to obey. And I just think that is a huge part of our prayer life. I do. I've seen it. I believe scripture reinforces that. Also, the eighth thing is this. Treat others with love, dignity, and respect. And again, this is not a transactional thing where it's like, God, did you see how nice I was to that guy who cut me off? So you're going to give me what I'm asking for, right? That's not how this works. The idea is, once again, if I am doing what I know God wants, if I know the general revealed will of God in Scripture is to care for people, to love people, to, to treat them as image bearers of God and and with value and dignity. And if I'm doing that, then I'll be more likely praying the things God wants to do in my life since I'm living out his will. And I believe how we treat people does affect not just our prayer requests and whether or not God is going to be like, "Mm, no, but what we are, what we choose to pray and whether or not that's aligned with God's will is affected by how we treat others. Real quick, if you don't know me, my name is Jason, and I have some free gifts for you at AboveReproachMinistry.com. Go to the website or click the links in the description below to check out all of our free Bible study resources. We have online Bible classes, devotional studies, Bible study workshops, all of my sermon notes, and more. You can even join our online church community on the Discord app. We also have discussion groups all around the world, and if you don't see one in your area, message me, and we'll help you start a launch group. I personally lead a group in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you live in the area, we'd love to have you join us on Fridays for Bible study. So contact me if you're interested and if you or your church would like me to come preach or teach, just message me or shoot me an email and we'll see what we can do because I love preaching in person. If you're a new follower of Jesus, click the new believer section to access everything we recommend for new believers. And be sure to snag a copy of my book Fruitful to support this ministry. All right, that's all I got for you. Let's jump back into the video. Matthew 5, 23 and 24. If you are offering your gift at the altar, And there you remember your brother has something against you. What is God concerned with? The gift you're offering or treating people or having like good, solid relationship with people? Not to say God doesn't care about gifts, but if there's one thing God cares about more, 
It's your relationship with people. It's your right relationship with people. First, be reconciled, then come and offer your gift. And this is not even you've personally offended them or you have something against them. It's just they've accused you, whether or not that's legitimate, whether or not like you have animosity towards them. That's not a part of it. It's someone else has a problem with you. Uh, whether it's true or false, deal with it. And, and have right relationship. Like like scripture will say, be at peace with everyone as far as it regards you. First Peter 3, 7. This is interesting. Sorry, you can't even see it, but Matthew 5, 23 and 24. First uh, Peter 3, 7 says, Likewise, husbands, hey, live with your wives in an understanding way. Nah, that's okay. On the man. Show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Nah, on the man. I don't do that. Well, they're heirs with you of the same grace of life. Uh... That doesn't make sense. So that your prayers may not be hindered. Oh. Well, now I got motivation to treat my wife loving and respectfully. You had motivation when God told you that he loved you while you were still a sinner. The love of God motivates us, not some, hey, what do I get out of this? You mean my prayers will be hindered if I don't treat my wife? The, the idea here is, hey, actually, God does consider and concern himself with how you are treating your spouse. And I don't believe this is again, hey, if you treat her well, I'll answer, your, I'll answer two prayers this week. And you're like, dang, for reals? That's not what's happening. Again, it's the fact that my prayers are less likely to be the will of God when I am all using my life to, uh, I don't know, treat others poorly. But if I'm living out the will of God and and loving people and, and treating people with care and dignity and respect and generosity and, and the love of God. And then it's more likely that what I'm praying won't be hindered. Not in the sense that God's like, block that shop boy. But in the sense that God's like, that's actually what I want to do in your life. Yeah. Sometimes prayers, whatever the language you use, prayers can be hindered. Um, or a prayer life can be affected by how we treat people. And I, I just, I want to tell you that, but I almost hesitate to because we're going to look at that and go, oh, so this is my way to get my request answered. I just got to be nice to my wife. And that's, I just don't think we're supposed to see it like that. Just understand that your prayer life and your life in general are deeply connected. The ninth thing, and we'll bring this to a close is extend forgiveness to those who ask. Mark eleven twenty five. whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, uh, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And this is not at all the positional once for all forgiveness at the cross and the moment of faith, all sin cleansed. If I'm being very honest, I don't know how to um, appropriately in context relate the idea of what this forgiveness looks like. I would just make sense of it as being experientially um, enjoying in, walking in, uh, experiencing, relishing in the forgiveness God has given you. Um, but also maybe there's just consequences that you'd otherwise avoid in that sense. Forgiveness, while there's, we can brush with broad strokes and say forgiveness always means this, there's expressions uh, of the idea. Like there are ways in which God will express forgiveness to an individual um, and I think we should consider that to not to just get around this and be like, cop out, but to say hey, the point is not to make sense of this. The point is to say, apparently God cares 
about you forgiving other people. And that can deeply impact the way that we relate with God and come to Him and what we pray. It affects our prayer life. The last thing is 1 Timothy 2.8. Here's something you can do, okay? And even if answered prayer wasn't a part of the equation for forgiveness, we should forgive people as hard as, um, I don't know, unnatural as it may feel, as much as we want to just hold on to that bitterness and not, we should forgive because he's forgiven us, not because we get anything out of it. It's not like God's holding you hostage, like all your sins, I'm going to hold them against you and condemn you and send you to separation from me if you don't forgive your, and you're like, oh, it's not to guilt trip and punish and, and, and pressure you. It's, it's to say, hey, there's more. I don't think we should go any farther than that. First Timothy 2.8, um, more for you to experience rather, let me clarify. Promote unity in God's family and not division. Promote unity in God's family, not division. You'll notice that each of these 10 things essentially get to the same core idea. They're all essentially saying, live out the will of God. But a lot of these statements you'll see connected to prayer. For instance, I desire then that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. And I find that interesting. I find it interesting that praying here, what God desires, what kind of prayer he wants, it's connected to this collective unity and love and care and um, not anger, not quarreling, not di- division. I, I'll say it like this, and then I'll, 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 I'll leave this just in your mind, just dropping it. Go think on it. Go shower thoughts. Add this to your shower thoughts. But I wonder how many um, of our church prayers, prayer requests, whatever, prayer lives are being deeply hindered or affected by how terribly they treat each other and how much division they allow and how much anger and bitterness. Not at all to say, I'm exempt. We have that same issue. Wherever we find ourselves in communities, the default at times can be anger and quarreling and dividing and fighting and, but I'm standing on the word. I can't let that be. And, and, and then it becomes all about picking sides And what God says, apparently prayer is not just like, hey, you pray. It's, hey, y'all, y'all pray. And they're like, sweet. And he's like, well, hold on. Before you just lift those hands and tell me you're praying, make sure that your life and your community is free of these things. And I don't think that Paul would have connected the ideas if they didn't play off each other and affect each other. Does that make sense? So whether or not the connection is legitimate doesn't change the fact that we should pursue unity not not um uh what's it called when not compromise um but unity built on truth and unity involves understanding it involves charity it involves seeking to you know better understand where someone's coming from and their perspective instead of just jumping the gun and being like, I gotta guard the flock, I gotta destroy this person and remove them. Unity built on truth does play a role in our prayer life. Are you someone that promotes 
division and when you get around it's like gossip and who's for me and who's against me and what did they say and did you hear what they do are you someone that like is that kind of a person and it's like oh here she comes because we know what's going to happen when she comes around we're gonna have to pick sides and she's gonna cause drama in the church or are you someone that is actively engaging uh, your local church or your your body of believers you're a part of are you actively engaging them in such a way that promotes unity when you're removed from a local community are they more unified because of it or are they actually do they find themselves like hey there's something missing a little bit oh that's right she's not here or he's not here there's always such a a unifying um i don't know presence that they bring and it's just wonderful what do you add to your community so yes 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 um, here's what we're going to do. Those are the 10 things. I'm going to go back, starting with 10. Promote unity in God's family, not division. Extend forgiveness to those who ask. Treat others with love, dignity, and respect. Uh, aim to obey God more every day. Don't live or pray double-minded. Don't live in unrepentant sin. Produce or you know, pursue the good fruit of the Spirit. Take pleasure in the Lord. Pray according to God's will and stay close to Jesus. You do those things, you'll be better for it. Um, and uh, your prayer life might just skyrocket. In a, well, depending on how you're going to qualify that, you might be surprised what that looks like. Hey, thanks for watching. Don't forget to share your thoughts and your insights in the comments. If you want to share your thoughts and questions about these studies, join us every Thursday evening at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for a live discussion together. And thank you for supporting this ministry. Your support helps us accomplish our mission, which is to teach people how to read the Bible so they can live and teach it for themselves. We're only able to make all of these free resources because of generous supporters like you. So thank you very much for all of your support. Make sure to visit AboveReproachMinistry.com to check out all of our free resources. And as always, keep moving towards Jesus.